Our opening words are a poem in a time of peril by Barbara Road. Of course, truth is hard. It is a rock. Yet I do not think it will fall upon me and crush me. I do not think they can hammer it to bits and stone me. Help me place the rock in the strong current of these rushing waters. I must climb upon it. I must know how truth feels. When I plunge naked into the bright depth of these waters, I must know how truth feels. When I am swept by the cold fury of these waters, I must know with my whole being how truth feels. I shall remember how truth feels. I praise the rock. I praise the river. I fear the drought more than death by water. Penny was eight years old and had been having a rough time. It had been a bad week. Many things were making her sad. Her favorite teacher, Mrs. Smith, was having a baby. And Penny was happy for her, but it also meant that Mrs. Smith was going to be gone for months and months, and Penny would miss her. Penny also had just found out that her best friend Spencer was moving away. Well, how? How would Penny have lunch without Spencer sitting next to her? How would she play at recess? She would miss them so much, and who, who would replace Spencer? No one could. So that made Penny really sad, too. And then she found out that a summer camp that she looked forward to all year long was canceled. Well, all of that. Penny got up one morning thinking about all of those things and she just felt so sad. In Penny's family, they had a way of being together when they were sad. They had a song, but they also had a practice of how they would be together. So when Penny came downstairs that day, looking very, very sad. The first person she saw was her brother, who was already up and playing with his Lego robot. And her brother looked at her and said, Penny, you look so sad. Why, everything about you looks sad. Penny said, yeah, I'm really sad. And her brother said, well, do you want me to cheer you up? Do you want to talk about it? Or do you just want some company? And Penny thought about that for a minute and said, I think, I think I want you to cheer me up, and then I want to sing our song. So her brother cheered her up. He made some really silly faces, and he made the five different noises he knows how to make with his mouth. <laughs> five. And Penny smiled a little bit. And then together they sang their song. All will be well, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. And Penny felt a little better, but she was still sad. It didn't take it away. Mama came down in her bathrobe and saw Penny. 
Penny, you look so sad, Mama said. What's going on? Penny said, yeah, I'm sad. Mama said, well, do you want me to cheer you up? Do you want to talk about it, or do you want some company? Penny said, I'd like to talk about it. But she knew that she was going to have to wait till Mama made her coffee. So she waited. <laughs> Mama made the coffee. And then they sat down together, and they talked about it. And Penny talked about Mrs. Smith going on maternity leave. And she talked about Spencer moving away. And she talked about how her camp was not happening this year. And they talked. And then when Penny was done talking, she said, I think I'd like to sing our song now. And so she and Mama sang, all will be well, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. And then Mama had to get dressed and go, get ready for work. Now, Penny is one of those very lucky children who gets to live with a grandparent. And just about this time, Grandma came back inside. She'd been out in the garden all morning working. And she came in with a big bowl of strawberries. And then she saw Penny. And she said, Penny, you look sad. And Penny said, yes, I am sad, Grandma. And Grandma said, would you like me to cheer you up? Or would you like to talk about it? Or would you like some company? And Penny said, Grandma, I would just love some company. And so they sat together, and they ate probably way too many strawberries. And then Penny said, let's sing our song. And so she and Grandma sang the song. All will be well, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. Penny was still sad, but she was never alone. With this story in our hearts, our children's classes may now begin. Our first reading is Letter to Someone Living 50 Years from Now by Matthew Olsman. Most likely, you think we hated the elephant, the golden toad, the thylacine, and all variations of whale harpooned into extinction. It must seem like we sought to leave you nothing but benzene, mercury, the stomachs of seagulls rippled with jet fuel and plastic. You probably doubt that we were capable of joy, but I assure you, we were. We still had the night sky back then, and like our ancestors, we admired its illuminated doodles of scorpion outlines and upside-down ladles. Absolutely, there were some forests left. Absolutely, we still had some lakes. I'm saying it wasn't all lead paint and sulfur dioxide. There were bees back then, and they pollinated a euphoria of flowers so we might contemplate the great mysteries and finally ask, hey guys, what's transcendence? And then all the bees were dead. Our second reading is from Peter Kalmus in Being the Change, Live Well, and Spark a Climate Revolution. I'm aware of how serious our predicament is I've gone through a process of grief. 
My grief was deep and intense. It felt like I was part of the ocean, like I was connected to everything. Every now and then this grief comes back to remind me why I do what I do. It purifies and clarifies. I doubt that anyone who understands the seriousness of global warming can avoid this grief. However, this grief is very far from despair. Grief comes from love, while despair comes from fear. I don't despair. Instead, I feel joy. It is true that we've lost a lot. A lot of wondrous species, a lot of beautiful places, a lot of opportunities, and that we'll lose even more. But even through this loss, we can experience how much there is to love, how much there is to save. Our grief and love can lead us to move forward with more creativity and more joy than we ever thought possible. I have no blind hope that they will think of something, and yet I still feel optimistic in my own way. My particular optimism comes from the direct experience of connection. So ends our readings. ago, I read a book about climate change called Six Degrees, Our Future on a Warmer Planet by Mark Linus. This book sought to project what would happen for an average warming of first one, then two, then three, then four, or five, to six degrees Celsius. And as you might imagine, the predictions grew more and more extreme and dire the further into the book and the greater the warming. By the end of the book, I was just sobbing as I read. This wasn't the first time that I had engaged with the seriousness of climate change or with environmentalism. I had already been involved in the 350.org movement that sought to highlight the need to stay below 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. But I had still felt hopeful before. And on that day, reading about the mass extinction of almost all life on our planet, I didn't feel hopeful. I felt existential crisis and despair. And I felt a deep, deep grief for all that is and may be lost. I'm not alone in these feelings, I know. A 2018 study called Climate Change and the American Mind conducted by Yale and George Mason University, found that almost 70% of Americans are worried about climate change and that 51% feel helpless. These numbers don't surprise me. In fact, it might be more surprising that there's still almost a third of us that aren't worried. The chronic ecological crisis we are witnessing brings many stressors. 
losses of special places of cultural or spiritual significance, loss of species, increased natural disasters and emergencies, loss of food security, and more. While these factors don't affect all people equally, we are all connected by global mass media so that we can see and witness what is happening all around the world. Researchers have begun describing a condition they call ecological grief and exploring how this affects mental health. Another connected condition, eco-anxiety, was described in 2017 by the American Psychiatric Association as a chronic fear of environmental doom. Now, some have argued that this anxiety is an irrational symptom primarily experienced by those already prone to anxiety or grief. And yet others argue that this is a natural and perfectly rational response to the reality of ecological loss. In Hope and Mourning in the Anthropocene by Neville Ellis and Ashley Kunselow, the authors write, from what we have seen in our own research, although this type of grief is already being experienced, it often lacks an appropriate avenue for expression or for healing. Indeed, not only do we lack the rituals and practices to help address feelings of ecological grief, until recently, we did not even have the language to give such feelings voice. And it is for these reasons that grief over losses in the natural world can feel, as American ecologist Phyllis Wendell put it, irrational, inappropriate, and anthropomorphic." End quote. One approach that I've seen to this problem has been to suggest that we not focus on doom and gloom and emphasize instead actions that can be taken so that no one feels helpless. And it's true that learned helplessness and despair may lead some to give up and fall into a form of catastrophism, accepting that there is no hope and that the best we can do is just party till the end of the world or build our own bunker or plan a colony on Mars. But if the alternative to catastrophism is to avoid the problem altogether, like an ostrich burying its head in the sand, and as a side note, they don't really do that, um, then we still will not be able, doing anything useful in the face of this crisis. The other alternative approach that I've seen, uh, you've probably seen it too, many documentaries and so forth will show starving polar bears and calving glaciers, and then they'll make sure that at the end, they end with a list of five things you can do today that include lowering your thermostat and changing your light bulbs. In other words, we describe the enormity of the problem, but then we switch quickly to small behaviors that individuals can control and they can feel better. It's not that I don't think we should lower our thermostats or change our light bulbs, but those actions are not solutions. And as such, they can only be band-aids for our emotional response to the reality that we face. I think it's also worth noting that a focus on solutions and optimism isn't particularly helpful or compassionate to those who are already suffering the loss of their way of life, culture, and connections to their past, such as indigenous people in the Arctic and the low-lying islands of the Pacific. 
it is also not helpful or being received all that well by the younger generations for whom the projections and predictions are not of a hypothetical future for generalized humanity, but instead describe the limits of what they can imagine and hope for their own futures. For people who are already experiencing a loss of past, present, or future, I believe the only responsible thing we can do is to grieve together, truly listen to their experiences, and see their stories as humanizing climate change and ecological crisis. We should extend this compassion to non-human life as well. Feeling the pain of others is not about anthropomorphizing or about appropriating a struggle that is not ours, but is rather an acknowledgement of our interconnectedness. Letting our hearts break for our hurting world is part of being truly connected, as our seventh Unitarian Universalist principle reminds us, to an interdependent web of life. As Joanna Macy writes in Active Hope, quote, this view of self is very different from that bound in the business as usual model. Its extreme individualism takes each of us as a separate bundle of self-interest with motivations and emotions that only make sense within the confines of our own stories. Pain for the world tells a different story, one about our interconnectedness. We feel distress when other beings suffer because at a deep level, we are not separate from them. The isolation that splits us from the living body of our world is an illusion. The pain breaks through it to tell us who we really are." End quote. The pain breaks through. It's natural to grieve. Grief is love that has nowhere to go anymore. Just as our lives are shaped by the reality of death, love is shaped by the reality of loss. We can learn to live and love better when we face those realities. Grief is not despair, which is the absence of hope and the triumph of fear. Again, from hope and mourning, quote, we do not see ecological grief as submitting to despair and neither does it justify switching off from the many environmental problems that confront humanity. Instead, we find great hope in the responses ecological grief is likely to invoke. Just as grief over the loss of a loved person puts into perspective what matters in our lives, collective experiences of ecological grief may coalesce into a strengthened sense of love and commitment to the places, ecosystems, and species that inspire, nurture, and sustain us. There is much grief work to be done and much of it will be hard. However, being open to the pain of ecological loss may be what is needed to prevent such losses from occurring in the first place." End quote. There is much grief work to be done and it will be hard. Grieving well is work, just as loving well is. And I don't think we are culturally well prepared and equipped for this work. Not only does Western culture place a greater emphasis on utilitarianism, valuing nature for what it can do for us rather than as sacred in its own right, 
but we are also products of American individualism and the story of the hero. We are equipped and prepared to extract, to use, to act, even perhaps to save, but not as well to love, revere, respect, support, and grieve. To expand our capacity for those relational reactions, we need to let our hearts open. There are practices that can help us. We can develop a personal practice of grieving well. Personally, I write my grief into a prayer journal, a semi-daily practice for me where I can focus my thoughts and prayers for others. Last May, I was moved by yet another sad news story about our local orca pod, and I wrote this in my prayer journal. Mother Earth, where does it hurt? Everywhere. The big mammals, where can they range? Nowhere. The little bugs, where are they missing? Everywhere. The orcas are starving. The bears have the ice melt beneath them. I weep and weeping is not enough. It hurts, it hurts everywhere. Or you might choose to sing, chant, paint, or many other ways to express the grief you feel. Joanna Macy suggests the practice of building a cairn of mourning. Each time you grieve for a loss in nature, pick up a stone to symbolize that loss and begin stacking the stones on each other. Your personal cairn of grief will grow, a marker for all that we are losing. Another important resource for grieving well is to find group support. Finding people who will be with you when you are sad, allowing you to feel your feelings, such as we saw in our story today, is very healing. Joanna Macy says, quote, a particular kind of magic happens when the work that reconnects is applied to group settings. It is tremendously reassuring to find that we are not alone in feeling pain for our world. To name it as normal is itself a healing act, end quote. I found this kind of group support in the Good Grief Network, a 10-step program that adapts the practices of Al-Anon to the work of eco-grief. With 10 steps and 10 meetings, a group shares in the process of doing the inner work from accepting the severity of the problem, acknowledging yourself to be both part of the problem and part of the solution, facing uncertainty and mortality, identifying your own ongoing inner work to do and learning about how your brain works, practicing gratitude, taking breaks and knowing when to rest, how to show up, and finally, reinvesting in action. The group that I met with were scattered around the world and we met through a video conference link, sharing our struggles and our grief from our homes or our small family farms in Scotland, our zero waste Parisian apartments, or from communes in California. While our lives were very different, the group work we did together felt very powerful and healing. 
I'm very excited by the possibilities of the Good Grief program, how it can support this grief work that we have to do. And I will be starting a group here at OUC in just a few weeks. All are invited to join, and you can learn more and register now on our website. And once you have a healthy practice of grief, we may be resilient enough to take grounded action for a better world. Not save the world, for none of us can do that alone. But there is good work to be done, and we might as well do it. Do we have anything more important to use our time with? As Peter Kalmus wrote in Be the Change, but then through these tears, I accepted reality as it is. Somehow, on the far side of the tears, I found the strength to go forward. Letting go has given me the space to imagine something new and better, a sea change. If you're grieving, let the tears flow. And when the tears finally stop, look around. You will see that you are surrounded by miracles and you will be inspired to work harder than you ever thought possible. Let's work to build a world where everyone puts others above self and where we live aligned with the biosphere. Fundamentally, what's impossible about that vision? What law of physics does it break? I need to spend my time doing something while I'm here on this planet, and it might as well be working toward this. And the place to start is with me." End quote. Yes, the place to start is within yourself, but that is not the place to end. From personal reflection and practice, from group reflection and practice, and from personal actions, our personal actions and practices need to move into collective action. They need to meet with others' actions and practices and form a patchwork quilt of sustainability and resiliency. Together, we can stitch the world back together with love. None of us does it all, and there is no one way to act in service of this love. Some may protect a local ecosystem. Others may develop and promote renewable resources. Some may seek to rescue and aid those already suffering the ill effects of our current way of life. Others may educate or advocate or protest. We do what our hearts call us to do, acting from the love and grief we feel for all life. Charles Eisenstein writes in Climate, A New Story, when we put everything we've got into the service of a vision, the world takes notice and reality shifts. Our failures are our prayers. This is not to suggest we commit to an impossible cause, hoping that performing the rituals of protest will magically bring the impossible result we wish for. It means doing the best we can based on the knowledge we have, knowing that our sincere commitment will impact the world. No sincere action is ever in vain. We cannot be sure our prayers will be answered in the form we expect. We can be confident, though, that our prayers are at least heard. We are not alone here." End quote. 
I am still sometimes reduced to tears and sobbing when I read about or see the effects of ecological crisis. I wept for Australia as the fires burned. I recently sat beneath a 1,000-year-old tree and grieved for our dwindling forests. And I have looked at our children and worried deeply for their future. But these tears and grief and worries are not the problem. They are the heart-centered response. The Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh was once asked what we need to do to save our world. And he replied, what we most need to do is to hear within us the sound of the earth crying. Look within yourself. If you hear the earth crying, embrace it. Let it cry. Let your heart break open. You may be overwhelmed at times, but I believe you can do this hard thing. Your heart may break, but it will keep on going in love even as it is broken. Answer yes to life, yes to love, yes to truth. The times ahead may be very hard indeed, I have no faith that someone is going to fix it. But I do have faith in love. And I do believe that those who are sincerely motivated by love are called to lean into this time of uncertainty and transition with a heart-centered care and reverence for what is lost and what may be saved. My heart is breaking. Yes, it is. Perhaps your heart is breaking too. Perhaps the whole heart of the world will break. And what I believe will spill forth is love. May it be so.